0: Reading from John 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of the men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who are born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you promised to meet us there. You promised to correct us. You promised to reprove us. You promised to comfort us. You promised to teach us everything that we need for life and godliness we find in your word. And God, I pray that even as we move through this Advent season, God, I pray that we would see a bigger view of who you are. God, I pray that even beyond the feelings that we get to feel, the experiences we get to have, Father, I pray that we would have such an enlarged view of you, Jesus, I pray that we would have an enlarged view of who you are and what it is we're celebrating. God, I pray that in, in all of these things, we would know that this is truly our lives, what we dedicate ourselves to, what we find joy in, is all about you and not ourselves. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are entering into my favorite time of the year. I've made this joke many times. I listen to Christmas music all year round. I don't subscribe to that view of like, no Christmas music till after Thanksgiving. It was Christmas in July for me. It was Christmas in May for me. I love Christmas time. And there's a lot to enjoy. There's a lot for us to engage in when it's, when it's Christmas time. And actually, for those who come from more high church backgrounds and know the liturgical calendar, this is uh, the season known as Advent. And so when you hear the the word advent, it literally means kind of the the introduction of something and specifically the introduction of something you've been longing for. So when people talk about the advent of this invention or the advent of a certain thing or a certain person, uh, it implies that there's something that we've been longing for, something that we have needed. And it's almost like advent simply means finally it's here. And so when you get to this idea of Advent, and we're talking about Christmas and we're celebrating, what is it that we've been longing for that we're celebrating? It's a big question. What is it that you've been longing for? What is it? What does Christmas represent? What does the, the incarnation of Jesus, how does that answer something that we've been longing for? Maybe the question is, have we been longing for it? Is it something that we've, are there things that we're longing for that maybe are just too shallow, and maybe our our longings aren't deep enough? Because there's something in Advent that's supposed to answer that, always. There's something it's supposed to answer. So we decided, uh, instead of what we've done in the past, we've picked specific texts to walk through different parts of the Christmas story, and we've done that for the last five years. So if you want that, we got tons of sermons on our newly put up podcast, by all means. (laughs) Shameless plug, check it out. Um, But beyond that, what we chose to do is to go through an actual gospel. Now, you know this here at at, at ICON, we really prefer to go through scripture. We prefer to go through things, kind of expository preaching, exposing the scriptures, helping us kind of go through line upon line. And so uh, typically we'll pick a book and we had to figure out what did we want to do during this time? We said, you know, let's, let's do a gospel. Let's do one of the four gospels. And we chose to do the book of John. And I honestly, after preparing for this, I can't think of a better gospel to start with in preparing for Advent than the book of John. Now, uh, the, the area that we're going to go through here, these first 18 verses, they're known kind of as a prologue, kind of a preface to the rest of John's gospel. These first 18 verses are kind of this, this prologue. And so before we go deeper, we've got to get a, a general understanding of how the gospels work, right? This, you've got four different New Testament authors that have given an account of the life the work, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, you've got this person of Jesus and you see some things that are so wonderful about him. Most authors have, uh, most scholars have shown, and we see this throughout scripture, there, there are so many things that Jesus did, not one, no one book could hold it all. And we also know that certain things about him were so wonderful, there's just not one single account that can give an adequate explanation of who he is and why he came. So God gave us not just one gospel, he gave us four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all look at the life, the ministry, the work of Jesus from, somewhat, from a somewhat different perspective, right? There are certain aspects that each author is highlighting about who Jesus is. So I don't want to overestimate the differences, but there are different emphases, right? There's actually different audiences, one, uh, one scholar put it this way, Matthew was given for the Jews, Mark was given for the Italians or the Romans, Luke was given for the Greeks, and John was given for the whole world. Uh, J.C. Uh, Ryle was an Anglican bishop of Liverpool uh, uh, back in the, in the 17th century, and uh, he, he says this about John's gospel. The things which are peculiar to John's gospel are among the most precious possessions of the church of Christ. No one of the four gospel writers has given us such full statements about the divinity of Christ as we read in these pages. Indeed, John's gospel is one of the world's treasures. Some folks say John is so simple that children memorize their first verses from from the pages of John, and yet it's so profound that dying adults ask to hear it as they pass from this world. It said it could be said that John is a pool safe enough for a child to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. That came actually from Gregory the Great back in like the 600s, not 1600s, 600s. John has been a book that for centuries, dare I say millennia, folks have been holding on to and going, this is seriously deep, but also incredibly simple. Martin Luther wrote, this is the unique, tender, genuine chief gospel. Should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the epistle to the Romans and the gospel, according to John, escape him, Christianity would still be saved. Most folks would look at John as the deepest of all the Gospels. There's incredible depth here. There's some deep theological treatises you can build just from John alone. So when you pay attention to the beginning of how each of the Gospels starts, Right. If you start, uh, if you if you look at Mark, Mark begins with the baptism of Jesus. Right. It talks about the work of John the Baptist. We'll talk about him in a minute, and it brings up kind of the work that was being done. It doesn't start with his childhood. It doesn't even start with his birth. It starts with his ministry, and there's a reason for that. Matthew goes back farther. Matthew goes back to Abraham. He begins with Abraham, and he starts showing, emphasizing Christ's lineage. Why? Because he's emphasizing Christ as Savior and as Messiah, the very Messiah that the Jewish people were waiting for. So it makes sense that Matthew would then start with this genealogy because if you're Jewish, you care deeply about that genealogy because you've been waiting for a Messiah from the seed of David. So of course, Matthew would start that way. It's all the begats. If you grew up in King James world like I did, begat, begat, begat. I always thought that just meant skip it. Don't skip it. There's some (laughs) significant stuff in there. And you look at Luke. Luke begins even further back, right? All right Luke begins with Adam. So now he's not just showing the G- who Jesus is. He's showing that Jesus wasn't just sent for the Jews, but for the whole world to, to be redeemer, to be savior, to be lord of all nations, to, to be a savior to all who want him so that they can have him. So each of them, if you notice, they're going back a little further, a little bit further. But John goes back even further than that. John goes all the way back to in the beginning. There's a reason why John starts differently than the other three authors. John actually is giving us a deeper picture of who Jesus is and saying more about the nature of Christ. He goes all the way back to, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The fundamental thing that John is getting across in this gospel is not just the ministry of Jesus, not just the, 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 the miracles of Jesus, not just the incredible miraculous nature of his birth, not even just the fact that he came and died as a sacrifice for sin. John is actually coming to prove and to show the entire world that Jesus, this incredible man, was also an incredible God. John is actually showing us that Jesus is God. He makes that more clear than any other gospel does. And we're going to see this as we break down these verses. If you look at uh, Genesis, I mean, sorry, if you look at John 1, verses 1 through 18, you notice it's kind of split, right? The first eight or nine verses start to show you how Jesus was God before his incarnation. And then the second eight or nine verses shows who Jesus is and his glory as God in his incarnation. It's so peculiar when you think about the language that John uses and consider his audience and how weird and off the wall this would have sounded to them. You would never talk about a person, a man that people have already seen and witnessed. You would never talk and use language like this. None of the other authors would open that way because that wasn't their goal at the time. But John does. He gives a witness. He starts to show even how John the Baptist is a witness to who Jesus is starts to show that not only can I tell you who Jesus was, there are witnesses that can attest to who Jesus was and who he is. So we need, to, we need to have this question answered for us. Who is Jesus for us when we're going into Christmas? I'm going to keep coming back to this. Who is Jesus to us when we go into Christmas? Is he this incredible man? Is he somebody with, that's a really good teacher? Is he somebody that was really, really moral? Or is he God in the flesh? Because that actually is going to determine whether or not we receive him, whether or not we rejoice in him. We'll see how. So you look at these first eight verses and you're seeing Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. You're seeing Jesus before he ever put flesh on. This, gets, this is why it would have been so bizarre for the original listeners. Listen to the very first verse. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. How? Would that even be possible? You notice there's an echo here, right? This is an echo of Genesis 1. John, when you read John, he actually starts, there's a parallelism that's happening between the way he phrases, the way he shapes his gospel with the way Genesis opens in the beginning, right? You look in in, in Genesis 1 and it starts walking through in the beginning and what was happening and what God was doing in in creating everything that we see, everything that we know. Whatever's happening in Genesis 1, according to John, Christ was in existence during that time. Now that, that's a, that, I mean, that's a, an, an incredible, almost ridiculous statement to say about any other human being. Hey, before any of this stuff happened, Jesus was there. He was in existence. Now, there's some language here that John uses that already implies and, dare I say, just directly claims that Jesus is God. Now, when he says, in the beginning was the word, some of us know this. This term word is used only by John. Of all the gospel authors, only John uses this word, this Greek word, logos. This is where we get the word logo from. This, this Greek word, logos, for word. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. okay. And he uses that to describe Jesus. As a matter of fact, John uses that word several times. He uses it in 1 John. He also uses it in Revelation chapter 19, depending on if you think that John is the same author there. Lots of different talks on that. But you see that word used there as well. But it's not just John that used this word. Folks who have been in church for a while have heard this word before and we have made reference to the Lagos and talked a little bit about it. But here's the thing. Sometimes, you know, we get our hands on a concordance and we get super excited, but we don't understand the history behind a word. Mm-hmm. So, so you might be able to say, hey, I got, I got some Hebrew I can throw out to people. I got a Greek word to make people think I'm really theologically astute. But we don't understand how that fits contextually. But when you understand that this was a word that wasn't invented by the New Testament authors. This this idea of logos had been used by Greek philosophers for centuries before this. As a matter of fact, Plato said it. Plato put it this way. He said, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything play. This is before Jesus ever came on the scene. People have been longing for something. So what do they mean by word? What do they mean by logos? Forget about even just the the New Testament church using that word. Forget about how how people who who were Jewish were using that word. How would just your normal kind of Greek-speaking folks and some of your your Greek-speaking and Greek-thinking community, how would they have understood this? Because it was a word they used very normally. Well, this underlying term, logos, it was used so widely and in such different contexts. That it was understood to be essentially this this abstract, impersonal force that undergirded everything we understand and everything we know. So if you were a Greek philosopher, you were constantly thinking, what is the root principle of all knowledge? What is the root principle of how all things fit together? There's just this sense of of understanding things fit. Things fit because the logos makes things fit. This, this, This impersonal Force, almost like the force in Star Wars. like Doesn't really have a a name, it's just the force. And it can be used by good or bad people, but it's just the force. It's impersonal, doesn't have any real moral agency, right? Doesn't really choose or determine certain things. It's just up to the people who have the force to determine if they're good or bad. I know I'm nerding out really hard. and I'm not (laughs) going to go any farther, but just understand that the idea outside of Christianity, the idea that there's this, this, just this moving logical principle that is keeping all things together. That was how people thought your highest, most educated people thought that way. And yet John still takes that definition and changes it. Because this idea of the Lagos, it has no distinct personality, but it does refer to inner thought, reason, even science. But John's, his, his usage of Lagos is the first time somebody, anybody, any of his contemporaries did this. He starts gathering this idea of the Lagos into an actual person, into the person of Jesus, so it's not just this, this, this you know, natural kind of thing that just occurs, neither good or bad, it's just the simple inertia, simple inevitability. Things just happen, reaction, action, reaction, everything just happens kind of randomly. And here he's actually capturing this idea of Lagos and saying, this is actually wrapped up in a person. He personifies that that word, the word Lagos. And then he applies it as a title. To the way that God ultimately discloses himself. So it's like, hey, the way that you're trying to make sense of the world, the things that are fitting, some things, maybe you've got good science or good logic, and, and it's where the word logic comes from, the logos. You've got good logic. Things are fitting together really, really well. Uh, the reason why that fits really well is not just because of some impersonal force, that actually is God. And he revealed himself in his son, Jesus. That's Uncanny like that just would not have made sense to anyone during this time You'd have to be really brave to put some crazy stuff down like this I like, guess when people are like, you know I just think a bunch of people just made stuff up if you were gonna make something up You wouldn't make this up because people would just summarily dismiss you No one talked this way. No one would ever just make a claim like this and Yet he does strategically This word, then, this word word or lagos is being used to serve as a bridge word, not just to reach Jews, but also to reach the Greeks. And so you see John choosing this concept because both Jesus or both Jews and the Greeks would be familiar with it. They all knew this idea of Lagos. If you were Jewish, this idea of the word meant kind of uh, the, the, the word of God, the wisdom of God, the idea that God reveals himself, even in what we know to be the Old Testament scriptures. They understood God's principles, God's heart. Okay, that is the word of God. They understood that. But for, 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 for John to say, hey, that very principle that you've been holding to from your Old Testament scriptures, that you just know as the scripture, that actually was wrapped up in Jesus too that also would have blown their minds. So this is gonna make everybody scratch their head because now you've you've got John, dare I say, John is taking a word that everyone in this culture knows and he's contextualizing it in order for them to understand the gospel. He didn't have to create new words. You know, we do this. Church folk can be real good at just creating new stuff. I'm going to show I'm real smart. I'm going to create a word. I'm going to take certain things out. I'm going to add certain things in. He says, I don't have to do that. I don't have to reinvent the wheel. You guys already have something that I can use. You know, we always say, when, as a Christian, when you look at the way God draws people to himself, you're always in a position to either um, reject, receive, or redeem everything in culture. Everything. You either see, some, see something, as patently false, completely not God's heart, reject it. Or you see something that's partially true, but it's kind of, it's been tinged by certain areas of sin or misunderstanding. And so, so, so we, we, can, we have to redeem that with the truth of the gospel. Some things are just all the way true, and we're like, hey, that's true. I can just receive that fully. Reject, receive, redeem. And so what, what John is doing in some ways, in many ways, is redeeming this word that had been used for centuries and centuries and centuries about this impersonal force that makes all things happen. Now there's another way of thinking about the word. You can only know the thoughts of a person through their words, right? You, if you sit down with somebody, I prove it, just sit down, if, you're going for, if you've ever gone on a date at any point in time, go on a date and just sit and just say nothing. First date, I'm not talking about, you know, we've been together for a really long time, now it's really cool to just not say anything because we're reading body language, I'm looking at, we're not talking about that. You, you, you're on your first date, and you're just sitting there, and no one says anything. What do you learn about each other other than you both are, like, not very communicable? <laughs> you see, you, the only way you know what a person thinks, or the only way you know how a person is wired, who, who they actually are, is through their words. In some rare situation... If I as a pastor happen to have some deep, profound spiritual thought, but you don't know what I'm thinking, I know it's rare, but you don't know what I'm thinking, you gain no benefit from me. If I just stand here and just look and go, oh, there's good theological wisdom, <laughs> and I just stare, it's just a waste of time. Now, some of y'all still might be a waste of time. That's fine. I get it. You can feel what you want. But you would, never, you would never be able to know how the, this is invaluable to you. Because it's not until I share words, it's not until I communicate what it is that I'm thinking or what it is that I'm feeling. If I don't communicate that to you, it's no value, it, is, it is no value to you. Once I open my mouth, you gain a benefit. Why? Because words are the vehicle of thought. Words are how you transmit what it is that you think. So if you, if you apply that to Jesus... Jesus is the word in that he perfectly reveals God's heart and his thoughts to us in the very same way. There's so many ways that God has revealed and he has never revealed himself more perfectly than his son coming and saying, I am now showing you the fullness of God in my being, in my character, in my ministry, in my words. You are now seeing God in a way that he has never been on display before. So when you apply that to Jesus, how can we know God? When people say, and this is, this is a hard statement, but a lot of times, you know, we, there are many ways to have certain tangential connections to God and maybe start to learn things about God. The world that we live in is replete with so many praiseworthy things that makes us go, I know there's got to be a God. Because I'm looking at these, incredible, these incredibly created mountains, or I, you know, I know folks who love to go you know, hiking and be in the outdoors and go, I feel so close to God when I do that. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? But there's nothing salvific about that either. There's no way that you go into a place and you see the, the wonders and the creation of God and go, I am so far from a holy God and I need to be redeemed because my heart is broken. That won't get you there. So you can know about God. You still don't know him yet, right? We can know about him. We can have some ideas about what he's capable of. This God is capable of creating some incredible things. You go to see this incredible waterfall or you see things that have been carved out by glacial movements and you're like, wow, huge ravines and huge canyons that have been carved out by glaciers. The power, the sheer force of this creative God is amazing, but it still doesn't tell you much about his heart. It tells you about his power, but it doesn't tell you much about his heart. It doesn't tell you about his mind. Again, it just tells you about his ability. So if anything, it tells you more about what God is than it does who God is. But what Jesus does, when he comes, he comes to say, I'm, I'm coming so that you know not only what God is, but so that you know who God is. And so if we want to know him savingly, if we want to know him as our father, as our friend, as our helper, is our redeemer. We have to look at Jesus Christ, this this Jesus who perfectly reveals God. That's why we're gonna see later, Jesus says in John 14, he that has seen me has seen the Father. How can he say that? Well, because ultimately he realizes the fullness of who God is dwells in God the Son. So you see him also say, you see him say uh, the word was with God, this idea of him being face-to-face with the Father. The idea, first of all, that Jesus is, pre, is pre-existing, that he existed before his actual incarnation, which, again, hard to wrap our brains around anyway. But then he says, and he was, he was side-by-side, right next to the Father, face-to-face. But then right after that, he not only says he was with God, then he says, and the Word was God. This is... Heavy. This is a bold claim. It's a bold claim because, again, this is something that would be, this, this honestly has, so, this has such heavy implications. And we've seen this over history because there have been groups, religious groups, groups that have actually reinterpreted this passage in order to refute the divinity of Jesus. And so, if you've ever read, uh, there's a translation of the Bible known as the New, the New World Translation. It's the uh, the Bible that happened. Not even doing this to pick on any groups, but this is something for us to be aware of. So, if you come, I, we know folks, and I've had family members that are part of kind of the Jehovah's Witness religious group. In their Bible, if you go to John 1:1, 1, 1, it'll say, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God." The reason why is because they would actually add this, the letter A and then make G small so that you could say, see, so Jesus isn't actually God. He's just maybe a little bit higher created than human beings, maybe close to the, the angels in some way, but he's not God. And so there's a, there's a lot of gymnastics. If you've ever studied Greek, there's a lot of herm- some, some Greek gymnastics that are done in order to get there. Most Greek, you know, uh, uh, Greek scholars have already kind of debunked this. But it's important because if you don't see Jesus as God, you actually can't know him well. Because ultimately to know Jesus is to know God. That's what John is trying to get across. See, John's whole goal is, yes, I got some great stories to tell you, but I need you to understand this guy that just did all this stuff. This was God. If you don't understand this was God, you really won't understand what it means to relate to him well. You won't know what it means to connect to him well. And you won't know what it means to desperately long to be redeemed by him. So when you apply that, it's really interesting because ultimately we see this idea, this difficult thing to wrap around, this, this understanding of God existing in this kind of multi-formed God, the Son, God, the Father, God, the Spirit. It's a whole other sermon, but, but ultimately we're left having to deal with the fact that the text lays it out there for us. So we, we have to hold some things in tension here, but we see that there is this, this, this picture that John is painting of Jesus being the Son of God and being God the Son. And he's laying that out there. First one of the Gospels, the only one of the Gospels to to just lay that, plant that flag down and say, by the way, he was God. Now, there are other places that the other Gospels point out that show Jesus' divinity. This is the most direct. So this isn't just, here's why it's so important. It's important that we don't see this story as the story of a really good guy that showed up. Christmas. This Advent, this idea of being excited that something has come, should be the story of a really good God that showed up. If we don't see it that way, you're going to see what ends up happening. You're going to see what, what John kind of warns us against. But that's, so it's not just that Jesus preexisted, right? That, all of a sudden, that automatically proves his divinity, the fact that he existed before uh, his physical existence. But then if you look at verse 3, he goes even further and he says... This is heavy. All things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Hmm. Now, I skipped over two because I love real quick. What two says is he was with God in the beginning. Now, it's kind of interesting to me. He just basically said that in verse one, but it's almost like John is like, yeah, I know that that made you that made you kind of flipped out in case you missed it. He really was with him in the beginning. And then in verse 3, all things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Listen, this is where you start running into a problem if you hold to the view that you see espoused in that New World Translation. Because, yes, okay, it, how, how much would this make sense? In the beginning was the word and the word with God and the word was a God. And everything was created by him and through him. And th- So wait a minute then, how, how can he have created himself? See, Paul, but John wants us to understand just how high the stakes are here. He wants us to understand this Jesus, he not only just, just happened to be pre-existent, he was a part of creation. It's not just a good story here. It's not even just your good Savior here. He, he's a good God that was a part of the creation process. Everything that was created was created by him and through him. There's not a thing in all of existence that exists without him having created it. Now, how could you ever apply something like that to just a mere man? Again, who would make something like this up? It would just be asinine to ever just say that about a random person or even a really cool person. But this is his proof that Jesus is God. So if folks say, well, no, it's Jesus isn't God. If he's not God, he has to have been created. He must be a creature. A creature can't create itself. Then you look at verses four and five, and you see uh, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. This gets even heavier, because what you're talking about now is John is talking about Christ's relationship to mankind throughout history. You realize how heavy this is? Like he's, it's, it's one thing to say, and here's what Jesus did when he was walking around in Galilee doing X, Y, and Z. But to say throughout all of history, Jesus, anytime you saw the light or the life happening, whether Old or New Testament, that's all happening through Jesus. In him was the life and the light was the light of men. He uses the word life about 36 times. He actually uses that word more than any other book does in the New Testament. John constantly using the word light and life. Now, when you think about life and light, these universally, if you studied any number of religions, those are always religious symbols. Universally, you see life and light being used as these religious symbols. When John uses them, he's focusing on the glory of Jesus as the word. Think about it again in verse four. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. You've got this symbol, right? Throughout scripture, light and darkness are familiar symbols, right? Intellectually, light refers to biblical truth. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 623, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. See, he's applying this principle that goes beyond just the birth of Jesus. He's, kind of, he's pointing out something that's even heavier. What you, you realize that before sin, Adam and Eve had their life in him as well, without even knowing it. You see, life, any, the good life, the life that's lived that's completely reflecting who God is, the very image of God well, that's only possible through the co-creator of all creation, which is Jesus, Paul is saying everything that we, lo- everything that we look to in, the, in, in, in our forefathers, everything that we look to in the law, everything that we say is good. Every time we look at an example of someone who is following God well, that light that's being emanated, the life that's being lived, that's occurring through Jesus. That's, that's like mind-blowing. This, this, what you thought was a mere mortal, all the people that we look up to, all the people that we hold to, the people we want to emulate— They're only doing this through the power, through the life, through the light of Jesus. And when he, the the way he words in verse five, that light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. That is, that's heavy, right? Light shines in darkness. You realize that dark, you know, anytime there's darkness, there's an absence of light. Anytime there's darkness, it happens because there's just an absence of light. You can have the darkest room in the world. All you have to do is have a little flashlight, little candle, and all of a sudden light is emanating, right? Darkness has to start fleeing whenever there's light. And so he uses this picture, this idea of the light breaking through the darkness, and he's already shown the light is not only revelation bound up with creation, but it's, it's through salvation. The same way a single candle can overcome a room filled with darkness, the powers of darkness are overcome by the person and work of the son through his death on the cross. John is creating this. He's raising these stakes high. He, he realizes that what we all kind of struggle with is really easy to forget the most fundamental truths. Over time, it can be really easy to forget what's most fundamental. And so he's basically saying, don't forget who Jesus really is. All this other stuff, living out this Christian life and being a part of these kind of, we got our cultural things and we've got our traditions and don't forget who Jesus really is. If you forget who Jesus really is, you may be rejecting him. You may not actually be receiving him. And the only way you can know God or have salvation is to have faith in Jesus Christ as God and Savior of the world. It's vitally important that we understand him as God, this Lord of glory, the Savior of our souls. Then he takes a quick uh, he, he walks through verses six through eight and he really quickly kind of walks through uh, this, this, this other person. And we're gonna talk about it more later. But uh, he says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. This is also really, really interesting that it would place this here. So we've got this story. We, we've, uh, and we'll talk about it more, but there's a man. We know him now as John the Baptist. Right. And so basically, while people were waiting for the Messiah to come, they were waiting for this savior to come and to Now, they, they had their own ideas of what the Messiah should look like or what he might be and what kind of power he'll display. But they were waiting. Life was bad. They saw areas of darkness. They saw things you Now, some of them. They were upset because they were like, hey, listen, we've been waiting to be able to have our own Jewish nation for a while. We got this kangaroo puppet government that the Romans have allowed for us to have, but it's not really any real representation of any kind. We don't have our own flag. We don't have our own army. We don't have our own nation. We don't even have our own king that that truly has any real power. And so they've been waiting for a Messiah to restore them to prior glory. We want to have a kingdom again. We want to have our military again. We want to be recognized as a world power like the rest of these countries are. So maybe they were waiting for a Messiah like that. But nonetheless, they were waiting, looking, longing. And what, 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 what ends up happening is God sends a prophet out ahead to basically what you see in, in the Old Testament prophesies that there would be a prophet that would come making, way, making the way straight before the Messiah comes. Somebody will come on the scene. Basically, John the Baptist preaches this gospel of repentance. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, make sure that our hearts are right. Make sure that our hearts are longing for the right thing because the Messiah is coming. And so John the Baptist has been spending his time preaching about this Messiah that's coming. Walking around, we've we've talked about this before, the ways that, I always think about this. We do know that John the Baptist is related to Jesus, right? Mary, Jesus' mom, and Elizabeth, John's mom. They were cousins. Now, we don't know, it could be second, third degree, we don't know exactly, but they're related. They even talked and met up and commiserated and were excited about what was happening when John the Baptist was coming. You imagine the humility that has to be at play for John the Baptist? I mean, he's basically basically been living this life almost as kind of a lone ranger roam, roaming around, meandering seemingly aimlessly when really he has real direction. But he's going around and he's basically saying, hey, my whole, my whole job in my life is to just preach this gospel of repentance so that people are prepared when the Messiah comes. And, and I always think like when he watches, we'll see this later, when he actually meets Jesus, just even for him, how interesting that has to be. Because it's almost like you think you're just like, what up, cuz? But it's not even that. He's like, are you the one? We'll see. But here John the Baptist is, he's coming to, to, to be a witness to the light, preaching this message of repentance, baptizing people who had committed to repenting in preparation for the Messiah to come. Now, here's the, here's the lesson here real quick. It's kind of a, a side lesson, but it's important. We know this. We see this in the old. We see this in the new. We see this today. God uses people. God uses vessels to serve as witnesses to the light. He always has. He uses people to serve as witnesses to the light. But here's the, here's the issue. People or vessels are never to be confused with the actual light. In other words, we're never supposed to be in a position where the person pointing to the light is now being worshipped as if they are the light. This actually happens far too often. And the reason why is because we are prone to idolatry. We just went through a whole series on idols. We're prone to idolatry. Whether we make ourselves the idol, which is very common, and then we make each other the idol. And so it's really easy, right, to see someone, you can be, we're so desirous of worshiping something. Why? Because we were created to worship, right? That desire to worship isn't bad. That desire to find something to worship isn't necessarily bad, but what we talked about, what did sin do? Sin took something that was good, and what it does is it perverts it. And so now I'm longing to worship. The problem is what I fill that blank with becomes something that's not God. And so it's very easy for us to go, listen, I love the fact that this over here is bringing me truth. And so I'm going to treat the person bringing truth like they are the truth. And then I'm just going to be worshiping them. This is the reason why. And this is hard. This is heavy. I think about this even in my own church background. This happens where you can have somebody that's just incredible. And they're bringing truth. And you're thankful for them. And if or when they fall in any way. All of a sudden you're ready to fall away. Why? Because it wasn't the truth that was holding you together. It was the person that brought you that truth that was holding you together. That's idolatry. Plain and simple. We can be broken and hurt and we should, and we can mourn that, but we almost have to ask ourselves the question, if this is making me walk away, then I have to ask what was holding me to begin with? Was it just the fact that I respected this person so much? Or I loved them so much, or they were a mentor for me, which is all legitimate. Those are all legitimate things. I trusted this person, or, but, but now they've done this and they've hurt me in, in, in heavy ways. They've disappointed me in heavy ways. And so I can no longer come back to this truth in the same way. See, what we've done is we've made these folks idols. We didn't mean to. We, we didn't know that we were doing it because it happens naturally, it's our nature now to do it. But at some point we have to go, Lord, if I know the truth to be true, then regardless of whoever it is that brought it to me, I can hold on to this truth regardless. And so we have to be careful not to worship the means of the message more than the message itself. That's what we do. And, And I'll just say this, some of us want to be worshiped so much that we want to be the means in order to be worshiped more than the message. So, so what that means is you'll see this in ministry for sure, but it can happen anywhere. Hey, I want to be uh, this, this incredible preacher, or I want to be somebody that, that is able to be organized in such a way that I can build great churches. Or I want to be this person, not simply because I want people to genuinely know this message and I want to see them genuinely grow and be fully formed and transformed into the image of who Jesus is, but more so because I want them to know I'm the one who brought this. So if I build this church, I want to make sure, not picking on anybody, but I want to make sure that that fellowship hall has my name on it. I want people to remember that I was the one that did this. It's really easy to fall into that. So why is John having to do this? Because he knows what we're, God knows what we're prone to do. Hey, John the Baptist was coming on the scene. By the way, he wasn't the light. Don't get it twisted. Don't, don't start forming the church of John the Baptist. Don't start doing that. He was not the light. He witnessed to the light, has to remind us not to be idolaters because this is who we are. Now, here's what we'll do. Nowadays, even if you're not doing ministry, here's here's another way that we'll do it. Uh, If I want to be able to get like some type of renown, or I want to be able to do it in social media world, it happens a lot now. And it happens in this way: you may have some incredible truth to share. We love finding like some kind of deep truth. Put it out. Nothing wrong with that. I think it's a blessing. It can be awesome. But we want to do it in such a way so that once... Don't go viral. Soon as you go viral, here's what people will tell you. Conventional wisdom is you better have something to, to market, to promote. Find something to promote. So as soon as you go viral, here's what you'll see. Watch somebody who maybe tweets something out or put something on Instagram or whatever. And it goes super mad viral, right? It goes mad viral. So somebody puts up like, so sad at what's happening in Calcutta. 20 million views. Hey y'all, here's my SoundCloud. Some of y'all need to Google SoundCloud, but put up here. I want you to know, like I make music, everybody, look at my stuff. Why? Because ultimately I wanted to use something that maybe was a really good message, but the goal wasn't to be able to transform you with the message. It was to get your attention onto me. And so God is making it really clear. John is making it really clear. Don't get it twisted. The message is what matters. The messenger might be good, might be bad, we don't know. But the message is what matters. So don't get it twisted. John the Baptist, he was a witness to the light. He was not the light. And then you look through verses 9 through 13 and you start seeing now. Now we've moved past Jesus and all of his glory long before he comes on the scene. Which, by the way, this is really interesting too, right? There's some really cool people in here. That's awesome. No matter how great you are, no matter how wonderful you are, there was no glory about you before you came. None. They may say, listen, you may have had parents who kind of l- couldn't wait for someone like you to come. They know exactly what you're going to look like. Some of them were disappointed. No, I'm just kidding. But, but, <laughs> but they, don't, they don't know what's coming, but they're hoping, right? They're hoping. Like, we want to have a kid. We want to have this. We want to have that. Maybe they're telling everybody, hey, we got a kid on the way. We're really excited. That's incredible. Okay. There's a degree of excitement and some of There, glory. There, there's no actual substantive glory about you before you got here. And whatever you have now really ain't that much. So so it's interesting. Jesus is the only being with whom there is glory before he physically is here. God wants us to understand that. So, So his glory is not just rooted in what he does when he gets here. His glory is who he is before he shows up. So that's how John then can say, he's already laid the groundwork, right? Pre-incarnation, this is how glorious Jesus was, right? He was, he was present at creation. He's, he's, he's there face-to-face with the Father. Equality with God. He is God the Son. Every single good thing, anything that you would look at as positive and good, light was done through him. Anything that you see is bringing life throughout history is rooted in him. This is all who Jesus is. Now, knowing that, now he shows up on the sea. Now he starts to move into verse nine and he says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That verse, true light coming into the world. Y'all, this is an Advent Verse. When we start getting ready for Christmas and all these wonderful there's great things about the birth of Jesus. But this is the thing, right? What, where does the expectancy come from? True light is coming into the world. A light that can't be overcome by darkness. Now, here's why this doesn't get us as excited during Christmas time as it, as it should. right? If, if there was something that I said, hey, listen, there is something that is going to be the best thing possible for your life right now. And I said, it's coming. How would you respond when it showed up? You'd be really excited. Probably a lot more excited than y'all seem right now. (laughs) I mean, it would be like, wow, I was finally here. I've been, been waiting. Now, how can you be excited, right? What would make you get excited about something showing up? You're acknowledging how much you need it. You're acknowledging just how broken things were before it showed up. See, John is saying true light was coming into the world, but what ends up happening? He was in the world. And the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. How is it possible to need something so much and not recognize it when it shows up? How, how can that? It just seems illogical, right? I mean, we fancy ourselves as intelligent people. We think that we know what we need, right? So when it shows up, we're like, "Bet, awesome. What I need is here. How is it possible then that these folks... Right, being reminded, hey, Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming, Messiah shows up, and they didn't receive him. What is John getting at here? Well, this is where I think we've got to be really careful during the Christmas season, right? Because Christmas time is a time of joy and it's a time of fun, right? It's a time of, of all of these wonderful things that we like to hold together. And yet, Christmas, again, this this arrival of the Messiah on the scene, this arrival of Jesus happens. And they don't receive him. They don't recognize him. So maybe the question is, where are we not recognizing Jesus? Maybe the question is, why don't we recognize him? Because what we're seeing is, based on what John says, your reception of Jesus is dependent on your recognition of him. They didn't recognize him, so they didn't receive him. they didn't recognize him as what they actually needed or were longing for, so they didn't receive him. So again, as we go deeper, this Christmas, are we really recognizing Jesus? Like when you think through the Advent season and what it is that you're longing for most, are you actually recognizing? Because if you're not recognizing him, recognizing your need for him, you very well may not be receiving him this Christmas. So how might we reject Jesus in 2019? How might we reject him during this Advent Christmas season, right? I would imagine no one would think that they're rejecting Jesus during the holidays, but are we truly receiving him as light that conquers darkness? Like when you really think about the songs that we'll sing and the movies that we'll watch and the things that we get excited about, we're looking at the the decorations and we're looking at the tree, all good, wonderful things. Please don't hear me say these things are bad. Wonderful things, love it. But when we see them, where do our greatest affections go? What stirs your greatest affections when you're thinking about this season? And look, I'd ask this to myself. This is a big, this is a big deal because we could genuinely be rejecting him without knowing it, right? Am I, am I really receiving Jesus as this light that conquers darkness? See, this means that rejoicing in the light coming doesn't mean we hide from the darkness. Christmas, a lot of times, holiday seasons are usually a a, a time of the year that we escape. It's a time of the year that we're like, I don't want to be reminded of X, Y, and Z. I just want to have a break from the the pain. I want to have a break, and I get it. Like, I want it. I want to break from the reminders. I want to break from. Let me just be really, really honest with you all. Not that I'm never not, but let me just be even more transparent with you. Christmas is always hard for me. I love Christmas. I've always loved Christmas. It's always been my favorite holiday. It's a really hard time for me. And I, and, I, and I know some of your stories and I know it's a hard time for you. I know why. If you've had any loved one in your life with whom you've shared deep intimacy and closeness, a parent, a spouse, a friend, a relative, anything like that, the holidays can be really hard. It can be really sad. It can be really depressing. When I lost my mom, it was one of the most debilitating things for me. And Christmas time is always really hard because my mom was such a curator of memories that any time the holidays happened, she made things, she made things happen in such a, way, such a way you could never forget it. I, like anybody else, have these deep nostalgic connections to the, the aroma of all of the pies and cakes and food that was cooking, and my mama could burn. And that's not a pejorative. My mama could really cook for some of y'all. <laughs> Her mother was a caterer, so our our house would just smell so good all the time. And she didn't have much, but she would find a way to just make these incredible culinary dishes of tantalizing, delectable morsels of goodness. (laughs) And she would do it just seamlessly without any kind of complaint. She would just do it. I remember one time, I'm not going to belabor this long. I remember one time, like, Mom, listen, my friends don't know that you can really cook. And I need, I need them to know about how you, me- how you mess with that cheesecake. Because my mom had this, the dopest cheesecake. So my, my friend was like, man, cheesecake is cheesecake. It can't be anything. I was like, Mom, I need you to make six of them. And I'm bringing them back. She was like, I got you. I came back with a stack of six cheesecakes. This guy was like, man, this could be like currency in some countries. He just went crazy. Because my mom would do this. So for me, when Christmas time comes, it becomes hard. And further, my mom's birthday is about six days after Christmas, New Year's Eve. So when the holidays come, it becomes a really hard place. For some of you, when the holidays come, there are people that have passed or maybe there have been traumatic experiences in your lives, whether it's relationship issues or what have you. And so Christmas time can be really, really depressing and it feels really, really hard. Dark And so you try to find a way for the holidays to just be an escape. And I'm saying is that I get it. That's understandable. But it's also really dangerous. Because the bigger question is, how am I supposed to find hope in the midst of deep heartbreak? This Christmas, this, this Advent season, where do I look? To, to whom do I, do I go in order to find real joy and to hold on to some sense of hope in the midst of heartbreak? In the midst of disappointment? If if there are things happening societally, if there are things happening in the world that are just heartbreaking, and there are. there are things that are happening, you're like, Lord, it's just so hard for me to be able to want to rejoice when I know X, Y, and Z is happening. What do we hold to? You see, if you don't receive and recognize Jesus well, you don't have real hope. The holiday season becomes very, very hollow. You start thinking about the ways that we do. Here's what we do. Christmas will invite us to escape the ugly, the painful, the scary, the dark pits of life in favor of temporary refrains of quasi-happiness, quasi-joy, quasi-peace, and quasi-community. It's the reason why we run to stuff during the holidays and then we're depressed again when they're over. Because we just got a brief reprieve. Because that's not lasting joy. It's not lasting hope. So here's what this means. Darkness, not overcoming the light like the scripture says, right? This light that we're supposed to be holding to. If that light is real, then darkness, not overcoming it, starts looking like, I just don't want to be sad this Christmas. See, for, some, for, for a lot of ways, for a lot of us, it's like, to me, when I see darkness in the scriptures, the only thing you can think about is me being down, me being sad. This time of year... As I said, is my favorite, but when I step back and I evaluate like, what moves my heart, it's often the depiction of lonely and hurt people finding happiness for the holidays. When you watch the movies, a lot of Christmas movies, this is how they function. Again, good, wonderful, heartwarming things, right? What's what's the thing? It's always like a lot of times they're starting to follow the same formula, but it's always like someone is sad. Someone is lonely. Someone is troubled. They need a reason to have optimism and some incredible coincidence or some supernatural occurrence happens to remind them that things are getting better. Things are going to be OK. One of my favorite movies to watch. It's a wonderful life. What do you see happen there? You've got George Bailey. Right? Considering suicide, because times have been really hard in Bedford Falls. So he's there, he's standing on this bridge, getting ready to jump. Now, if you're doing like a math problem, George Bailey's problems equals darkness. That's darkness for for us, that's the darkness piece. He's really sad, he's really lonely, he's really upset, things have not worked out well, he's got a lot of things to be responsible for, he doesn't know how he's gonna solve those problems. He feels like things would have been better had he never been born. Enter in the light. Clarence, guardian second class, right? The guardian angel second class. Y'all remember this, right? Don't look at me like you ain't seen the movie. Everybody seen the movie. He's, he's assigned to bring hope. Clarence's job is to come and bring, he's an angel. And he's coming to bring hope. And he intervenes in Bailey's suicide. How does he do it? By jumping in the water so that George will go save him. So George saves him. And then... Clarence says, listen, you don't want to do this to yourself. Let me take you through a hypothetical Bedford Falls wherein you never existed. And I'm going to show you just how bad off everything would have been without you. I want to show you just how horrible the community would have become without you. But now that uh, he starts to see this, guess what happens? Uh, For him, he's getting this idea of like, you matter. Your loss is the world's loss. That equals light. Now, again, heartwarming story. I feel sacrilegious just like piling on. It's a wonderful life because my goodness, it's a great, great movie for what it is. But we have to be very careful. That is not the light of Christmas. That's not the joy of Christmas. That's in many ways. If that's where we stop, it, it, it can be true and wonderful. That's cool. If that's where you stop, then you've just exchanged one idol for another. I do matter. I am important. People would be worse off without me. If that's where you end, you're not holding on to Jesus. You're still holding on to you. So something's got to be more than that. Because let me tell you, there are going to be times where you won't be enough. And there won't be a guardian angel jumping in to stop you from committing suicide. They're not going to come in and go save me now. And if you think about it, even that is playing off of like this hero complex. I want to feel like the hero. If I want to stop you from doing something, let me just make you feel like a hero for a minute. I mean, honestly, this is how surreptitiously idolatry starts to sneak into our own hearts. So we got to be really careful because ultimately that's not the kind of darkness that that should be making us long for the light. The light is not. It's like other movies. It's like, you know, a lot of the movies that will happen, especially on the Hallmark Channel, my kids love to watch them. They're really cute and wonderful. And it's always like, I don't want to be alone for Christmas. And I'm not even knocking the fact of being alone. Like, I'm not, it's just that is the main storyline. I don't want to be alone for Christmas. That's darkness. And then the light is, there was someone in your face the whole time, and you didn't know it, and now you're in love. Christmas is saved. <laughs> Again, like, those are cool things, and that can be nice, that could be wonderful. That's not darkness and light in the way John's talking about. So if that's where you end for Christmas, if that's what you're holding to in Christmas, don't mistake that for actually receiving Jesus this Christmas. Don't mistake that for recognizing Jesus this Christmas. See, these things aren't bad. They're not bad at all, but it's not at all the joy of Advent. This is a joy of something so glorious that that something has finally come. That's the light that John is referring to. So if That's the primary emotion that is elicited in you this Christmas. Then you may not consciously be rejecting Christ, but you may not not be consciously receiving Christ either. Hmm. Now, conscious rejection is way easier to to explain, right? I just refuse to receive that. That's not what I want. It's not what I need. I can reject that pretty easily. But according to John, it's possible and likely to reject Jesus. Why? Why? Why do we reject him? Because our receiving him is linked to our recognizing who he is and why he has come. So what does that mean? If you don't see Jesus properly this Christmas, it's not saving you want. It's soothing you want. And that's a different thing. If all you want to be is soothed, then Christmas will do the trick. It'll give you great temporary soothing. Man, you know, I just needed something to take my mind off of it. Again, nothing wrong with that by itself. Hey, a little break or whatever. But for a lot of people, that's that's where Christmas ends. There's still not this receiving of this greater light. And so what does it mean then to say, Lord, let Christmas not just be about my soothing. What does it mean for it to be about my indeed saving? You look at verse 14, where where John goes next. You see this incredible case that John is building, right? He's walking systematically through this deep theological understanding of who Jesus is. And then in verse 14, he says, The word, Lagos, Jesus, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me, ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Again, John doing everything in his power to deflect praise away from him, because this is what humility looks like, right? The moment people start trying to give you undue praise, you push that away. It's not about artificially tearing yourself down, but it also was about, listen, I don't deserve this praise. Like when I'm bringing you This is just all about the person that this message is about. It's not about me. So he immediately says, hey, this person, my cousin over here, ranks higher than I do. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only son, who is himself God and is at the father's side. He has revealed him. Now, one thing that I I skipped over that we got to look at is what John says uh, earlier. If you look at verse 12, he says this. Now, he already said in verse 11, Jesus, the light, came on the scene. People didn't recognize him. They didn't receive him, right? Then he says this, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Think about all of this. So he's already kind of shown us the pre-incarnate glory of God, Jesus, his glory that existed before he physically was here. Then he starts to lay out like, and by the way, he's the light of all these things. And by the way, people have rejected him. They did not receive him. Then he starts to say, and he put on flesh. And when he put on flesh, he became what he was not, a man. What's interesting is he, he, he didn't just, I think a lot of times people think of this as like a metamorphosis. But it wasn't a metamorphosis. Like with a metamorphosis, you cease being what you were, right? Caterpillar turns into a butterfly. You look at the composition of those two things are completely different, right? Caterpillar transforms, turns into something else, gives up what it once was in order to be what it's become. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't give up being God. He he didn't do a, a metamorphosis here. He incarnated. He stayed God and wrapped flesh on. He kept his glory and put flesh on. Became in flesh, becoming human. He became what he was not a man, without ceasing to be what he was God. And so then it says that the Word made his dwelling among us. Which means that uh, that that word that's used there is a word that you see used even in the Old Testament about God tabernacling with his people. You remember in the Old Testament, right? You would see God would show up with his people. And when he would show up, his spirit would be in this tabernacle or in this tent. He would pitch his tent in these communities of God's people. And his spirit is there. His presence is there. He would almost, in, in many ways, he would just set up shop amongst his people, this word refers to the glory of God who made himself present in the temple, made himself present in the tabernacle. You see the example uh, when the bright cloud of the presence of God settles on the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It talks about the glory of God filling the temple during that time. Same kind of uh, story. You see it in Exodus. You see it in, in uh, 1 Kings 10. By the way, the word that's used there for this word for glory, this shared tabernacling, is a word that growing up in my church, we'd always use the Shekinah glory of God. Some of y'all know whenever you hear that word, it's, it's, come, it's come to take on way more meanings than what, what was intended. But the idea of Shekinah glory is the glory that sets that settles in with you. There's a glory of God that says, I'm setting up my tent right here. See, Jesus was the perfect Shekinah glory of God. He says, I'm, gonna, I'm not only just going to have my spirit temporarily rest among people, I'm not going to have it temporarily rest in this tent or in this temple. I'm going to enflesh myself and come and dwell with you fully so that you will experience the very Shekinah glory of my presence, of my nature, of my heart, of God. And so there's this dwelling or this settling that's happening here in this visible manifestation of God. So you see the, the parallel, right? In the Old Testament, uh, God met his people in the temple, of the tabernacle, he met Moses in the tent of meeting. But now God has chosen to dwell among his people and manifest himself most clearly in even a more personal way when the word, the logos, became flesh. So the incarnate word is the true Shekinah glory, this ultimate manifestation of the presence of God. The word became a man. Then he says this, When he says that uh, all of this, he became flesh, he's there, but uh, then he says all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God. This is really important too, because ultimately what John is saying, and this is hard to hear, but John is basically saying that Jesus coming and revealing himself to those who will receive him, those are the ones he's given the right to be called children of God. So listen, I know what we mean when we're like, we're all God's children, but are we? We're all God's creation. Now, listen, that in no way changes anything about how we love each other. That's the problem. People have taken that and then abused that thing. It has nothing to do. It it should never change at all. You know why? Because every image bearer is worthy of the dignity that God has given every creation. Every person, everything he's ever created is deserving of, of dignity. Humankind, fellow image bearers, they deserve dignity. They deserve protection. They deserve life. So so in no way does this say, hey, you don't know Jesus, so I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. That's not what this means. But ultimately, John is saying this. The only way that we're family is not just because, hey, I was lonely, you were lonely, come join. What makes us family is the very God that enfleshed himself and redeemed us and drew us to him. That's what makes us family. So we're all God's creation. We're not all God's children. Because until we actually are redeemed by him, we're not family. And this is not about excluding. He wants us to be family. He, the light came in order to make us family. So it's very dangerous a lot of times because many times something like that, well, we're all God's children, it becomes a convenient way to overlook the ways in which God's heart's not on display. We should be mourning the ways in which God's heart is not on display. But we don't do that when we're like, yeah, but, you know, we're all God's children, so I'm not, I'm not, that's not, not going to bother me. Well, no, it should. We still have to have a sense of, like, very God that created us. Everything that's created was created through God the Son. And I'm saying I'm made in his image. I'm saying I'm redeemed. I'm bought back by him. That any place where I see things that, that show that God's spirit is not on display, God's heart is not on display, I'm supposed to mourn that. I'm supposed to be upset by that. And actually, I long for people who are definitely God's creation. I long to see them be family not in some type of paternalistic condescending way it actually is rooted in humility i know what it was for me to not be family i know what it was for me to be estranged i know what it was for me to for my heart to not know what it means to know that light to know that life i know what it means for me to struggle now with being family so, if anything, that's the humility that should drive me. So, so understand this: when John is laying this out, he's saying very, very clearly that knowing Jesus and believing who He is and understanding why He has come—that is what makes us family. Not just meaningly, not just uh, uh, merely existing. Because ultimately, there's a difference between surviving and thriving. We can just live and survive spiritually, but what it means to thrive is to know the very one who gave us life. Mm-hmm. And so you see, uh, when, he, when he moves through the rest of this text and he makes this point, he's building this case for who Jesus is. And he goes in in verse 16, Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. This incredible passage, this phrase, I don't even have time to go into it. When you look this up, there's so many very poetic ways that this phrase has been taken because the, the, the English doesn't even do it justice. But there's this idea that the grace of God is almost building and not even just replacing, but like adding on and and, and completing and perfecting the grace that preceded it. There's this idea that like, yes, it was a grace of God that we even had the law. A lot of times we always pit law and grace against each other. But no, many parts of the law of God show God's heart. And so there are aspects where Jesus didn't come to, he says this, to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. Jesus is the full representation of the heart of God. So so there's something about the law that definitely was gracious for us. Paul says this in Romans. I wouldn't even have known that I was a sinner if it weren't for the law. I would not have known my need for a savior if I didn't know how far away I was from him. And the law shows me that. So there is a grace in the law. But then he says there's a grace upon grace. There's a grace that almost completes and perfects the grace that came before it. And Jesus is that perfecting grace. Jesus is that completing grace. And as he goes through, he says, uh, 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 for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, a grace leading to another grace. Then he says, no one has ever seen God. The one and only. You remember this in the Old Testament, when people thought they saw God or they saw God for a minute, they were afraid and scared and they thought they were going to die because there was something, if you were a good Jewish adherent, you knew, man, if we see God, we're going to surely die. And so the ones who did see some portion of God, the reason why they didn't die is just because of God's grace. And they could not have ever seen him in his fullness. It's just impossible. You could not see him and still stand, right? And so, and so here, he's, John is making this point and saying, do you realize who Jesus is? I'm telling you that he was face-to-face with God the Father. I'm telling you that he is completely the representation of God the Father. Nobody else has ever seen God. Why? Because this is God. It's the only way that he was able to actually be alive and be able to, to be pre-existent and not actually be completely obliterated. Because he was God, it only takes perfection to be able to stand in his presence. And only Jesus could do that. And he says, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's hand, Father's side. He has revealed him. This last phrase, he has revealed him, is one thing that really got me to, right? This idea that <clears throat> when he says he has revealed him, this word for reveal is really, really powerful. It's a word uh, that, that actually means, it's the same word that we would use when we talk about drawing out spiritual texts or spiritual truths out of the scriptures, right? It's a word that if you've ever been in any type of church world and we talk about uh, breaking into scripture, we use a word called exegeting scripture, right? We've, we've, we've talked about in the past what it means to exegete, right? This idea that you, you, you draw out what is true in the text and the danger, right? The opposite of that is eisegeting. So I'm going to read myself into the text so I can make it say whatever I want it to say versus exegeting, okay, what was the cultural context and what did it actually mean so that I could draw out what actually is true here? You realize that what what John is saying is that Jesus is the exegesis of God. When you know Jesus and we study Jesus and we learn Jesus and we love Jesus and we walk with Jesus, we are actually exegeting, we're drawing out who God really is. John is making a very bold statement here. He's basically saying it is impossible for you to know God the Father without knowing, loving, and being in a relationship with God the Son. It's impossible. Doesn't mean that you can't can't know certain things. Doesn't mean that you you can't uh, love. Doesn't mean that you can't do um, wonderful things. But there is only one way to truly know who God is and to be in true relationship and to be fully redeemed by him. And that is to know Jesus. Jesus. And so what we see, what John's whole point is, in the beginning, this prologue, before we get into the book of John, is basically saying this. Before we talk about, yeah, there's other people that have written about his birth and the great miracles that happened. You want to learn about Mary? Go over to my dude's uh, gospel. You want to learn about what happened with John the Baptist before this? Go over there and talk to old dude. Right now, I'm telling you, that's how you talk, old dude. But, but right now, I want you to understand that there is no knowing God outside of Jesus. Amen. There is no knowing God Outside of Jesus, only Jesus can make God known to man. And the reason why it's so hard is because sin has caused mankind to never be able to feel close to God. The reason why it's so easy to feel so distant, to feel so far, to feel so estranged, even cyclically, right? Times where you feel like, man, this is really rich and I feel like I'm really thriving. And then other times you're like, I just feel really dry right now. I feel like I'm just, my mind is somewhere else. My heart is somewhere else. The reason why that happens is because of sin. This, this, this thing that separates us makes us never feel like we can be close. And you have Jesus, the word, the son, who is the only one who is inseparable from his father. So how would Jesus make God the father known to fallen, sinful men and women? This is his Incarnation. This is his birth, and then this is his death, and this is his resurrection, and this is his exaltation. This is why this story matters. This is why it actually matters that we actually go, what is it that I'm holding to this Christmas right now? What am I longing for this Christmas right now? Because if he had to do this in order, Jesus had to bring us closer to him. It's not enough to just say, hey, Just believe in in that Jesus is God. Jesus is like, I realize that your own sin, your own heart is going to be so dark that just hearing the story is not going to be enough. Just having somebody tell you that I'm God is not going to be enough. I know that because you rejected me when I showed up. So it's not enough for me to, for somebody to just say, by the way, uh, that dude over there, he's actually the Messiah. Go follow him. Jesus knows that. And he realizes why. He realizes that our greatest need, in spite of a lot of legitimate needs, is to be reconciled to the father, to be reconciled to a God that made us, that designed us for a real relationship, that designed us for genuine intimacy. And he realizes that we can't get there, we won't get there just with our hearts alone. We won't get there with good willpower, we won't get there with with a lot of cleverness, we won't get there with, with a strong resolve. Jesus realized that yes, These creations, these these image bearers of God are separated from God. So Jesus realized, in order to save the separated, I myself have to become separated. So that's what Jesus does. He lives this life, dies this death, resurrects in order to actually bring us closer to the Father. The separation that happened on the cross, when you think through what that separation is, here we are separated from a holy God. Existing in this world where we are far from him and the separation that happens on the cross for only three days. Only three days is there, but for Jesus, who lives simultaneously in eternity past and, and present, those three days are like forever. He's been with God from He's been with God the Father forever. Can you imagine? When I listen, I remember when I first went away from home. You go away from home, especially if you, you know, for some, if you, it's kind of different because I couldn't wait to leave home. So it was different. But if you really are like, I'm longing and I miss my family, those first two or three days feel like forever. Like, Man, I really, I miss the things, the normal things that I'm used to. And this is Jesus, God, the son, separated from the father. Those three days had to feel like 3,000 years. And he says, in order to make God known to man, I'm going to pay an eternal price. So what is God like? Who is God? How can I know God? God chose to reveal himself in the most personal and intimate way when God became a human being. This God is Jesus, and we can know God crystal clearly through Jesus. He's the glorious one. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you, you love us so much that you don't leave us to carve out a way back to you. You don't leave us to try to figure out ways to, 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 to conjure up a formula that will bring us closer to you. I'm so thankful, God, that you don't leave us trying to figure out and read tea leaves and try to feel our way back to you. God, you have made it so clear that you saw our need for you. And before we ever cried out to you, you reached down to us. Jesus, I'm so thankful that you, in obeying the Father's uh, command, that you came, that you loved us so much to, to, to come and be with us, to flesh, to dwell, to live amongst people who are your enemies, who are rebellious against you. God, we know that this is where our hearts so easily go. Times when we say we want you, times when we're yelling Hosanna, and a week later saying crucify him. God, this is who we are. And so, God, it would be just depressing if this is where the story ends. But, Father, as we go through this Advent season, I pray that we would be so so moved and even unnerved by ways in which maybe we're not longing for you the way we should. Maybe, Lord, all we want this Christmas is to just be soothed by you. But we don't necessarily want to be truly saved by you. God, thank you for not waiting even for us to get our acts together, that you, at so many times, will just change our hearts and prick our hearts in such ways that now we're aware of our own brokenness and we're aware of our own sin to varying degrees. So God, will you do that here? Will you bring us a, a deep, holy conviction so that we would be able to truly engage real joy and real happiness? God, I pray that it would not just be things that are, contingent upon uh, circumstances that are happening right now. God, I pray that if those circumstances don't change this season, I pray that we have a lasting joy that we can hold on to in the midst of darkness. God, I pray that we would not use Christmas to escape darkness, but that we would use Christmas to face darkness because this is a light that's never overcome by it. And I pray that this would be true of our hearts. I pray that we would fight for joy and that our fight for joy would not just be rooted in our muscles and in our minds, but it would be rooted in your spirit, in your work, in your life, in your ministry, in your death, in your resurrection for your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to this table, this is, this is indeed what we're saying we believe. This is what we're, we're, we're proclaiming. We're ultimately saying that I realized that even this ver- this Christmas, this Advent season, The one thing I'm holding on to is not just good feelings. It's not just my heart being soothed, even though those things are good. And God may indeed do that. But my biggest hope, my biggest joy is not in that. It's that light has come and light continues to come. So every time I see darkness in my life, darkness in this world, I don't just get overcome and overtaken. Like as long as that tomb is empty, light is still coming. And if I can hold on to that, that's the only thing that I, that I get to actually find real joy in and that's enough. This is what we're proclaiming. We're saying, Lord, I realize that, that I'm, I'm broken, I realize that I was born estranged from you, I realize that I need something outside of myself in order for me to be reconciled back to you. I realize this, I'm acknowledging this, I'm broken by the ways in which I'm far, but I'm rejoicing in the ways that you keep drawing me back to you, that you promise to never let me go. If this is where your heart is, if this is where your joy is, if this is what you truly believe and are holding on to this Christmas, albeit tough, it's hard, and may even be begrudgingly at times, but you realize this is the one truth that can never change, then this table is for you. Sometimes we come to this table in tears. We come to this table with our fears. We come to this table with our uncertainties, but we realize if I don't know anything else, I know Jesus. I know him as the son of God. I know him as crucified, and I know him as resurrected with all glory and power in his hands. That's true for you. Then this table's for you. If it's not, if maybe you're in a place where you're like, I just don't know if this is really true of my heart. I don't know if I really see Jesus that way. I'm I'm comfortable with seeing Jesus as a really good man and I really try to follow uh, some of the moral teachings of Jesus. And I think those things are great and helps me be a really good citizen and I'm holding on to that. That's not receiving Jesus, according to John. We have to receive him as more than just even a savior. We have to receive him as Lord. So what does it mean then? What it means is that maybe during this time, Jesus doesn't want you to come and put on a mask and put on a costume and and play a role. He doesn't want you to hide from the real darkness this Christmas. He wants to meet you exactly where you are. So let this time be a time where, Lord, let me just do business with you. If you're here and if you're real, then when you impress upon my heart, This truth that maybe on some level I'm ignoring or maybe even I'm rejecting. And enable me to then receive and recognize you this Christmas. And our prayer is that this would be your first time coming and communing with God and his family. As our volunteers come, we want to remind you that we do communion here by the process of intinction. And so what that means is you'll walk down the middle aisle. You'll take a piece of gluten-free bread and dip it in wine or juice as you see fit. The wine will be on the right. Juice will be on the left. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he would give thanks for the Passover meal, this this meal that they've had over and over and over and over again. And here Jesus, the word, the Lagos, the very expressed heart and mind of God is standing before them, looking at the very people that would deny him, that would reject him, that would not receive him, and said, this is my body given for." You take and eat of it and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood. The blood poured out for the remission of sins, the blood of a new covenant. Take and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. Here's what the apostle Paul tells us. He says that every time we do this, Every time we engage in this, this is not just something that's rote. This is not something that's just perfunctory. This is not just something that's just tradition that we just do to feel like a Christian. This is, Paul says that every time we do this, think about how serious this is. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. You can't hide from the ugliness that required him to come. Christmas is so often a way that we do that. But this this child, this baby doesn't come if there's not an ugly world that needed him. And so what we do is, every time we do this, we're saying we're proclaiming the only hope we have, the only thing with which we get to have some sense of joy in the midst of sorrow and darkness, because we realize darkness never has the last word. And so we're proclaiming that until he returns. If that's your hope, if that's maybe even what you have to, with a soft fist, try to cling to, If that's what you're praying for, more faith to believe in, then come, be reminded, be convicted, be converted, taste and see that our Lord Jesus is indeed
0: good. Let's eat together.